Welcome to the Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by the Apocalypse, finally we're all outside playing again. Let's blow out the candles and start the show. Welcome everybody to the Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Blah Blah Blah. For the latest in legalese, log on to blahblahblahblahblah.com. Welcome everyone to the Pestle. I am Wes. And I'm Todd. And this is a movie podcast where we, as filmmakers, actors, producers, a musician, an athlete, we analyze films for all the things. One of the things that I really love, I love like journalism stories at the heart of it. They always seem to be about truth. One of the ironies as a filmmaker that I found over the last, I don't know, 10 years now that I've really been, you know, doing this or taking a run at it for technically like eight and a half years, but is I watch, I mean, I read a lot of stuff online. I'm thinking we'll get into that at some point, but I watch a lot of documentaries and the irony that I find in it is documentaries are supposed to be about their truth. And, you know, they have this aim or this presentation of being journalistic like we're exploring and we're presenting evidence and we're presenting facts. But in my professional experience, almost no documentaries are that. <laughs> like the exceedingly few documentaries are actually good journalism. Most of them are just aimed at selling their feature film. And so they, they present a very biased view on a thing in order to you know, pander to an audience uh, so that they can make some money, which is the goal of, you know, making a movie normally is, you know, you're trying to sell your film and have people watch it and provide an entertainment value. The The perversion of documentaries, feature documentaries, I want to point out, there are documentaries that I think are, are amazing, but very few of them are feature films. The documentaries that I love personally are like PBS Frontline. I think they do an incredible job. And then beyond that, uh, it gets very sketchy. <laughs> like, I think Laura Poitras does some an absolutely incredible work. And we covered 13th. But yeah, I don't know. I, I'm curious, like, are you a big documentary guy? Are you even a big, like, news guy? You don't strike me as someone who's just plugged into the news all day. But I honestly have no idea what that side of you is like. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I used to, I used to be into the news and then. I just stopped. Uh, it just got to be too much. And, you know, I have a lot of family that disagrees with me politically. And it got to the point where it was just, it was like, okay, do I really go down the rabbit hole and like double down? Or do I just kind of like leave it be? Because it's the, it's the kind of thing that can be really polarizing and make you not want to hang out with people that like disagree with you if you are to that side. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So, and I felt like the more news I would watch, the more that side I was. And so the more disconnected I would become from, from my family and friends that disagree with me or that I disagree with, however you want to say it. So I kind of stopped, you know, watching the news and everything. My wife watches the news. So I just get all the news I need from her. Yeah. Documentaries are kind of similar. It's funny that you say that because I kind of feel the same way. There are some that I, I think like the, it, the point is obviously to be biased, right? Like 13th is biased. 
but it should be like, that's the point of it is to Mm -hmm. tell that story that hasn't been told. Right. And so you can call that biased or call that, you know, just the story or like, Mm -hmm. you know, targeted story. But I, I do think that a lot of documentaries just, they like pick this, you know, one angle and that's the angle that they take to everything. Whereas, you know, in, in real life, there's a lot of gray area. There's a lot of like, yes, that is true. However, if that didn't happen, then this wouldn't happen. And, you know, there's, there's like this, there's this, you know, less greater or lesser evil kind of thing that just kind of exists and in, in everything, but is not addressed a lot of times by these, these documentaries. So I, I agree, but I kind of don't really watch a whole lot of documentaries unless they're re- ref- like referred to me, you know, like if you tell me, if you tell me, Oh dude, go watch this documentary. It's great. I know it's going to be great. I know I'm going to love it. If somebody else, you know, tells me, Oh, you should, you should really watch this, this thing. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. It's not, you know, going to be at the top of my list, you know, yeah. like I feel like in a lot of ways, documentaries are like musicals to me most musicals it's like really did that have to be two hours long (laughs) you could have told me everything you wanted to tell me in 30 minutes and it would have been so much better and you know so much so much more pointed and and you know like i would have probably listened the whole time (laughs) same with musicals it's like you don't have to sing this line that would take you 30 seconds to say really (laughs) except except for hamilton the hamilton is is amazing so but yeah anyway that's a little bit how i feel about a lot of documentaries so that's so good that's such a great point i mean i think you're right like most most documentaries uh, for the sake of making it a feature length tend to run just dry after the first 20 30 minutes exactly like you said they start stretching until they can finally hit the uh the home stretch and i think the the stuff that we gravitate to that we're like oh this is really interesting are usually going to be science-based like if you make a documentary on the higgs boson we'll probably geek out and watch the hell out of that two or three oh my god i watched the yeah yeah. (laughs) but beyond that it better be very good and some i'll watch if they're just kind of in the the public zeitgeist if you will i'll watch it just to see if there's any you know, weight to it. And more often than not, I'm, I walk away. I'm like, okay, so they presented the thing and made you deadly afraid of it as if it's, you know, the, the end all be all or yeah, it's all super heavily biased and fear mongering for the most part, which is most of the media. I mean, fear sells fear is what's kept us alive as a species, you know, and helped us evolve. And so as humans, we have a very strong reaction to that. And so it takes a very conscious effort to not react to that fear and instead to ask uh, some very basic questions, which hopefully I'll remember to get to at the very, very, very end of the episode. <laughs> but yeah, TBD. <laughs> <laughs> uh, with that in mind, uh, what are we going to do today? Oh, today we are doing Shattered Glass. So if you haven't seen this, pause this episode and go watch it because we got some some spoilers. There are some spoilers in this one. That we want to sure. watch out for some. Yeah. yeah. We'll talk about a few things. Uh, the anatomy of a liar. A lot of this is just based on the uh, the story and writing. I, I'm sure we'll touch on cinematography. I didn't make any real notes about it, but I know you like to, at a minimum, throw around some ideas. And so, I don't know. We'll see what comes out of that. But most of it's going to be story and writing. So anatomy of a liar. We'll talk about journalism's function, the process, and some of the weaknesses as 
kind of pointed out through the, the movie. And we'll also generally speak on the state of journalism today. I have some thoughts on that. And the, the meat of this episode was I was hoping to do because tomorrow is the, the, the big election. We're recording this Sunday night, but we're releasing it on Monday. And so uh, this is election week. So I was hoping to bring in like the, the original editor, Charles Lane, who's played by Peter Sarsgaard in this movie. So I was hoping to bring him on and he didn't get back to me. I tried to get in another editor from another pretty well-known news publication and they didn't get back to me. And so for those of you who are just completely miffed, we, the pestle, do not hold quite as much sway as you think we do <laughs> in public uh, uh, culture. So very surprising uh, for all of us. <laughs> Darn. Yeah, right. So the synopsis of, of the film, the story of a young journalist who fell from grace when it was discovered he fabricated over half of his articles from the publication The New Republic magazine, directed by Billy Ray, screenplay by Billy Ray, based on the article by Buzz Bizinger, Cinematography by Mandy Walker, starring Hayden Christensen as Stephen Glass, Peter Sarsgaard as Charles Lane, Chloe Savigny as Caitlin Avey, Rosario Dawson as Andy Fox, Hank Azaria as Michael Kelly, and Stephen Zahn as Adam Pennenberg. Make sure you go all the way back because half of them ran when Mike was still here. That's what this is. Of course. I mean, what are you going to do, Chuck? Pick us off one by one, everybody that was loyal to Mike? Do you have a staff that belongs to you? Is that the kind of magazine you want to run? Caitlin, when this thing blows, there isn't going to be a magazine anymore. Now, if you want to make this about Mike, make it about Mike. I don't give a shit. You can resent me, you can hate me, but come Monday morning, we're all going to have to answer for what we let happen here. We're all going to have an apology to make. Jesus Christ, don't you have any idea how much shit we're about to eat? Every competitor we ever took a shot at, they're going to pounce, and they should, because we blew it. Caitlin, he handed us fiction after fiction, and we printed them all as fact. Just because we found him entertaining. It's indefensible. Don't you know that? Wow. Yeah. I assume you hadn't even heard of this movie whenever I threw it out there. No. What did you think? How was the uh, experience for you? It was interesting. At the beginning, I th I was thinking, oh, I'm not going to like this. I just didn't like Hayden Christensen's character at all and didn't like how everybody was liking his character either. I, I just I felt weird about it because if I were if I worked with someone like that, I would hate them someone who just like sucks ass all day, like for on everyone just all day. And, and it's completely fake. Like it just, yeah. And I didn't know if that was the, that was the thing. It was weird. Cause I didn't know if it was the acting or if it was his character. And if it was his character, I didn't know if it was real or if it was fabricated. I didn't know what this was going to turn into, you know, what the revelation, I knew the revelation was going to be he wrote fake stuff, but I didn't know if he also was going to be fake. Mm. If everything, you know, all the kindness that he was giving and the was all a ruse, right? Yeah. Or if that was just, just him, I had no idea. So I couldn't really grasp his character because I didn't know what to expect from his character because it started off so fake 
that I expected it to be fake. And then the fact that it wasn't in the end, that's just kind of how he was, right? Like his persona was like that. Mm -hmm. And I think a little bit of it was, I'm going to be this way to get ahead, right? I'm going to be, because he's young, right? He's a young kid coming up as a writer and he, he just, you know, it always helps to be nice to everyone, to be the nice guy. Cause then everybody wants to like hang out with you or like to likes you. So, and he got that. And, and so I thought that's fake too, but turned out to not be. So the whole time he was kind of faking me out too. And I get, and, and so my point is, is that at first I didn't like it at all, but then at the end I did like it because I felt like, Oh, okay. He, he fooled me too. I don't know if that was the intent Mm. because it was opposite. It was like, I expect you to be fake because I know what's coming, but he wasn't fake. So had I not known what was coming, I probably wouldn't have liked it. Does that make sense? It was weird. Yeah, I'm kind of talking in circles, but it, it, that's kind of just what it felt like. And I didn't know how to take Peter Sarsgaard's character, but that was great because Peter Sarsgaard is amazing. I just have loved him and everything he's done. And it's, it was so surprising because I think normally he doesn't play a character that's like, like this. I feel like this is kind of a, a newer, not newer, but like a, a different character for him. And that, you know, you don't like him at first, but then at the end, like, you're like, no, he's the most real person in this entire movie. I mean, even the old boss who was like the, the good guy or whatever, like he was a shitty boss. Let's be honest. Mm-hmm. Like he was a shitty editor because he probably knew. He probably deep down knew. Maybe not new, but like he probably deep down, like didn't want to think that this. Because he failed too. They both failed in doing their editorial yes, duty. Completely, completely. But yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. So, so anyway, I didn't, I didn't quite like it at first at all. In fact, I hated it. I was like, this is going to be terrible. And then it just slowly got better and more interesting and a little heavy. Things got a little heavier and he got caught in a little piece of a lie. So it was kind of interesting to see him squirm a little bit and everything. I mean, I think overall, if I watch this movie again, it would be for Peter Sarsgaard. Yeah. Just to watch his performance, you know, but as the story goes, I just kind of feel like, I don't know, it could have been done a little, a little, it could have been done a little differently. I don't have the answer of what that is, but it's such an interesting story that, I don't know. There maybe maybe they were trying to be true to it and didn't want to add a bunch of flavor in and just be like raw. Here was the story and what happened and and everything and, and that's that's just it. And in that regard, I I admire that and I'll you know I'm I'm fine with that. But I think my I, th- I just think my my main problem was with his character was with with Stephen Glass. Mm. I just hated the guy i just hated him more than you know you hate the the bad the bad guy who kicks a puppy in a movie right right? i just hated him that much because i felt like he was that fake at least the bad guy you know he's real if that's really if you kick a puppy that's just who you are right right? that's right i know i know who you are (laughs) but but with him i had no idea who he was and i know that's probably part of the story but it just kind of drove me freaking crazy 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the the things that I really appreciate about this movie. Because same, like he drives me nuts too. You're watching it. And I think it's one of those things that removed from the situation like we are, the audience. It's not charming at all, right? It's very, uh, it's gross. It's ingratiating to, to a degree of saccharin, right? You're just like, this is just too much he is just pouring it on too thick and i am i am ready to cut away from this guy but you can't you can't cut away from this guy this guy is the story and we're not moving an inch and the the anatomy of a liar like i feel like is what they're kind of picking apart here every part of it right he's charming everyone he's overly considerate and overly complimentary right he's giving gifts and some of the gifts are just kind of these silly like i brought you gum you're just like Oh, uh, and it's one of those things that in real life, if you're there, I think we get sucked into it. I think those things are very hard to see through for, you know, most people. And that's why it works. That's why, I don't know, sociopaths are not that he's a sociopath. I have no idea, but he's clearly a, a, a liar and to the 10th degree. And I feel like this was all a part of his ability to get by with lying, right? The self-deprecation, the demure and modest, over-apologetic presentation, the self-flagellation, right? I'm sorry, do you want me to resign? Like, I, I know I made a really big mistake when in fact, it was actually just a really small, almost non-mistake. And but by overemphasizing how how a bad he feels about it, it kind of dissolves the defenses of the person you're in front of like, Oh, look at this guy. He's trying to, he feels so bad over this really minor mistake. Doesn't he know? Oh, I feel really bad for him. And it's all a part of manipulating, right? The redirection. Are you mad at me? Like it goes from, you know, the putting the attention on him and something that he needs to do or something that he's maybe needing to, to work on. And instead it re redirects it to, Oh, you know, feel sorry for this guy. And no, of course I'm not. And it's a, it's a redirection. It's a, it's a projection in order to make you reestablish the, the borders of the conversation. You know, Chuck hates me for being loyal to you, right? He gets on the phone with Michael Kelly, his former editor. He's like, he just hates me. He's just trying to win over everyone he talks to. The myth building is one of the things that took me by surprise and that I really loved is this little bit of myth building that he's constantly doing. When did you start talking to George or Harper's or whoever? And he's just like, oh, I'm not, I'm, I'm really not. It's probably nothing, right? He's just creating this atmosphere of this guy's got all kinds of things going on. And it makes you buy that much more into his bullshit. Because if, if he's talking to Harper's, if he's talking to whatever, the New York Times, then this guy's got the goods. And we should really, you know, be looking up to him and not questioning him and giving him more authority, basically. The virtue signaling, right? There's a scene where he starts going over one of his, uh, his colleagues' pieces and he starts shredding it, right? He gets really pissy over fact-checking. But we have an obligation to get the facts right. He's right, right there just giving it to this guy like, hey, this is a new republic. If you don't have it absolutely locked down airtight, you do not run it. And he's, it's virtue signaling over the top to make it seem like what he does, what he's about to the core of his character is not getting it wrong, which makes you not want to question his his pieces or anything that he calls truth because he's he's setting the standard. Why wouldn't why would you question him? And he, yeah, so he's putting himself above reproach. And there's also this really great sequence that's kind of carried throughout the entire film of him being an unreliable narrator. So for instance, towards the beginning, we're, we're at the table and we're hearing what happened at Juke Micronics with a hacker and while also watching it, we're watching it as if it actually happened. 
because we are the audience and we're taking the place of everyone in the newsroom. He's describing to them and therefore we're seeing, we're buying into his bullshit. And it's it's a beautiful scene. But the uh, what I really love is this scene at the very beginning whenever he's getting introduced to the classroom and we're sitting there and we keep cutting back to the classroom as he's walking all these kids through, you know, the life of a, a journalist and what it's really all about and blah, blah, blah. And of course, we find out at the end, the classroom's empty. He was never there. He was never looked up to or celebrated the way that he wanted to be. Like that was his aspiration. And he never got that, of course. And then I think another part of uh, him being a liar, uh, manipulator is the defensiveness, right? He attacks you when you're close to the truth. You're supposed to support me whenever at the end he's getting closed in on by uh, Charles Lane, his, his editor, Chuck Lane. And he just starts trying to direct it back to him, like attacking him. And this is what liars do. I don't know if anybody has run into this kind of a personality, but if you don't know what you're looking at, you will get eaten alive because these people know what they're doing. They, they know what you see. And that's where it hurts you. Like a liar is really good at understanding what people are observing about them. And so that they can, you know, put up these smoke and mirrors that reflect and obscure and obfuscate. So it becomes second nature for them to manipulate a situation and make you second guess, gaslight you into thinking that you don't know what truth is. You don't even know what reality is anymore. I mm -hmm. definitely run into my share of these people. You know, I, I kind of grew up around some of these scenarios. And so for me, it's been kind of a second nature and still, you know, you you hear the right lesson, you hear the right pitch, sales pitch, and you can still get taken in like it can still happen. There's no one that's immune given the right circumstances. And so I really looked at this film as almost a character study of a liar. And they but you think mm -hmm. you think like you don't think that they over. I mean, maybe he was like this, but still in the film, you can do it less annoyingly. You think he was really. I got you gum or, and, and oh, oh, like just doing all these. Yeah. I, I, I want to say you and I would not be sucked into that shit. No, no, no effing way. I would see through that shit because the things that I wouldn't see through is like, you could just automatically you West could mm -hmm. just start lying to me and I would never know because you're no, you're acting normal like yeah. a normal human being would you're not going over and above doing anything like too much of anything or you know whatever you know what i mean like yeah. that is a good way to hide it be normal and he wasn't normal at all like nothing about him was normal well here's the thing and this is why i think they they probably did it pretty close to the way he is i i would assume they didn't like, okay. exaggerate too much because the key to being a good liar is to disrupt normality, to, to recreate the baseline. Like a good lie sounds like the truth because most of your other truths that are actually real also sound like lies. And there's multiple approaches to this, but if you can make all your truths sound like bullshit, then your actual bullshit looks that much like more legit normal yeah yeah and so you're just disrupting that makes sense you're normalizing you know the the crazy that's one that way to, to approach it another way to approach it is to just understand what your baseline is and to understand like here's how to change you know the the situation or how to make my lie meet my baseline like you were saying like for me i i am an amazing liar 
I used to be like, I have over the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years or so, I've become very bitter, aggressive about being honest. Like I, you're not going to catch me in a lie because I'm not going to tell you one. <laughs> I will hurt your feelings. Like don't be careful what you ask me because I'm, and I hate lies. I hate lies with a, a really deep, you know, hatred. <laughs> and so lies don't go over very well with me. And, and so why is that? It's because I understand the, the, the intention behind lies. It's to manipulate. There's no other reason. I, I can't really come up with a good reason other than to manipulate someone into doing something that they may not otherwise want to do. And mm-hmm. I think the world operates better whenever, you know, we're all op- operating on, on an honest level. And so much of our world is filled with lies that I can't imagine making a better place through lies. And I, one of the things I love about this movie is Chuck Lane, like you said a minute ago, he he was the only one who who held it down. Like he came out, told the truth, despite all the all the craziness that was going on around him. And I have just so much respect for those kinds of people. And that's why I was really hoping to talk to this guy because he's a real person. Like I wanted to talk to someone who, you know, I could look up to yeah. and, uh, and appreciate and laud because there's just not that many people. And growing up, I I think I told a lot of lies and I knew exactly how to get away with them. No one ever caught me in a lie growing up, although I guess once, if you want to go back to way back, I was, oh my gosh, I was like three years old, give or take. And my family, we used to kind of take people in all the time. Like, oh, our friends are having a hard time. Come live with us. And there are times when, you know, my six person family, I'm the youngest of four. Uh, my two, my stepdad and my mom, six of us total. Sometimes there might be like 12 or 13 of us in the house, like in these tiny houses that I grew up in. And at one point early in my my childhood, uh, we had we had one of these situations and someone shot a window out of, uh, of the back car, the back window out of the car. And my dad sat us all, gathered all the kids up. There must have been, I don't know, close to 10 of us in the room. Like with a gun? Yeah, with like a BB gun. I don't know. Okay. Some kind of gun. I I, Honestly, I don't even know. I assume it was a BB gun. Okay. And I'll I'll tell you why here in a second. But he sat us in there. We must have sat in there for at least an hour. And he's like, no one's moving until someone confesses to what they did, to shooting out the window. Who did it? And after sitting in there for ages, I confessed. I did not do it. Actually, I did get away with this lie. I didn't do it, but I confessed to doing it. And it would, when they asked me the why, I was like, well, I saw a bunny rabbit hop up on the, the and I tried to shoot it. Like, this was my big excuse for shooting out the, the window. Oh, my God. Yeah, because my dad took me hunting one time, like a year or two before that. When I was like two, he took me hunting and I shot a bunny and I and I killed it. I didn't know. Like we got back home and I was so proud of what I did. And my my siblings are just killing me. They're like, you didn't actually shoot it. Dad shot it and he put it out there for you to shoot. And I wasn't hearing none of that. Like I know this is my handiwork. And so in my mind, I'm like, yeah, this is a legit thing. (laughs) Like I went hunting for a rabbit and it jumped up there and I shot it and I missed. (laughs) And I didn't know how serious it was until my dad like says, okay, here we go. And I'm like, where are we going? (laughs) And he's got his belt unraveling. Like, where are we going, Dad? <laughs> yeah. Oh, so, my God. So I got it. But I can only imagine what the person in that room, and we laugh about this to this day, like, what was the person who actually did it 
thinking whenever I confessed, they, they had to been like, oh, my God, is this true? I'm going to get away with this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then and then your dad whips out the belt and they're like, oh, oh, oh I'm oh, even happier. Yeah, I'm getting go. away with it now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, oh so God. I've always been wow. really good at lying. I got away with it because I understood yeah. generally. I mean, beyond that, I'm sure my mom and dad probably looked at me and were like, this kid didn't do it. <laughs> but yeah. what, what are you supposed to do? Someone confesses. You, it is what it is. And so yeah. understanding, I, mean, I think, yeah. how to disrupt the baseline. And I think I think that's what they were doing is he was screwing with the baseline and grading himself to everyone in just a heavy manipulation game. And I think I think the another question that you could ask out of it that they don't really address is why? Why would someone do all these things? And I think, I mean, to some degree, they, they touch on it, they hint at it. But from a psyche, psychiatric standpoint, it makes me wonder what makes someone so incapable of telling the truth and being genuine that and I, th- I got to think it's some level. It's just insecurity. It's you don't think you're good enough and who you are is not good enough. And therefore, you have to lie about it. Yeah, I don't know. What do you think? What do you think is, goes behind someone like that? Yeah. I mean, it, I think it's a lot of different reasons. It's not just one reason or like even a couple reasons. But it, for the pathological stuff, uh, yeah, I think it has a lot to do with insecurity, with what is it? The um, imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. especially in a situation like what Stephen Glass was in where, you know, you're a kid and you really want to be good at something. And you look around and you think, I don't know how I'm going to do this. There's so many people who are so much better than me. And so you maybe start off with some, with like a, uh, like a little white lie. It turns into a bigger one, turns into a bigger one. And then all of a sudden you have success through lying. And then when that happens, it's a slippery slope kind of thing. And when you're a kid and you think, you think, you think whatever situation you're in will never change. That is permanent. Even if you know that that's not true, it's still your reality and your reality is permanent. You will never be 40, right? Mm -hmm. You will never get caught. You will always have these friends. You will, you will always be sad. Everything is just permanent and weighs more when you're a kid. So I think that when you have success through lying, you just think that you'll never get caught. And you just, you know, kind of keep going with it. I mean that, or you just like it. You like the thrill of getting away with something, you know, kind of like, like a, like a serial killer or something. You just have this thrill of like doing something and then not being caught. Right. And then doing it again and not being caught, but eventually you get caught, you know, always or most of the time. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't have any answer, like one specific answer, but there are a lot of different reasons. And I think it's also, it's also just easier <laughs> too. could be a late laziness thing, yeah. you know, not necessarily in his, in his situation. Uh, you know, I think that he probably didn't just stay home and think of these ideas. He probably like went places and met people and, you know, and created scenarios and places that he had been and false stories, yeah. I guess. Yeah. So on the topic of journalism, I, I really like journalism movies. And in this one, 
for from a, a high level journalism is just about right informing the masses and journalism movies are usually all about digging for the truth no matter what at all cost and this film starts to to ask some of these very interesting fundamental questions about journalism which is the integrity question is it do you tell the truth and suffer the consequences like what do you do when your duty is to tell the truth but telling the truth will ruin you as usually that that's usually when that question comes up is when it's going to hurt you to a detrimental degree when lying looks like uh, the easier route what do you do and chuck looks like the bad guy to his staff but does the right thing anyway and i love chuck in this movie he takes it on the chin time and time again he never comes out to a staff and says hey here's what i think is going on he does his due diligence he works the problem all the way through before finally shutting it down and i love because the the clip that we played is really the only clip where he sounds off like he he mm-hmm. he has it out with the staff you know with uh caitlin uh, played by Chloe Savini. And he just tells her, like, do you understand how much shit we're going to have to eat by everybody? Because they've been, you know, the the official news publication on Air Force One. That's no that's a nice, you know, feather in the cap. Uh, and he just throughout the entire movie keeps his cool. He hears like other editors basically calling him out, keeps his cool and even tries to hear out glass like he gives him every opportunity to actually prove it prove himself not a liar and finally you know he hits his breaking point with him he's like this is it you're done this is over and yet even then he waits he doesn't fire him until he's actually gone through all the articles himself uh, and has very firm evidence. And he's like, yeah, he cooked all this. And then he fires him like what amazing restraint that he has. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's uh, the heartbeat of journalism is supposed to be that kind of restraint. And the uh, the the movie, I think, is trying to get at one of the weaknesses of journalism as told through through Amy. Um, we didn't have her in the credits here. Melanie Linsky, uh, who you would recognize through so many films. Um, and she's amazing. And Amy says, these guys don't want policy pieces anymore. They want humor. And man, if that's not the truth, like you turn on any news station, uh, if you re- open up any website media, uh, you'll you'll you're not going to see a good policy piece. You're going to see some kind of humoristic take, or you're going to see some kind of takedown piece, soundbite journalism. Uh, none yeah. of it's about actual thoughtful uh, discourse. Instead, and this movie kind of shows it right out there. Uh, there's a big fight for credit and bylines. Like that's what everyone wants. Whenever, you know, he's playing a, a guest lecturer, quote unquote, at the beginning of the film. I, I love the the teacher who's introducing him, like just flaunts all the credits in front of the class, just magazine name dropping everything. And then whenever Stephen Glass gets up there and starts preaching, everybody he's like, yeah, I don't want to hear about journalistic responsibility. Do you? You just want to hear how to get your name in print. And that's where his uh, mentality is. Uh, and that's ultimately, you know, one of the reasons for his downfall, probably on top of everything else that we've been talking about. Um, but it's that desire to be that, that easy road, get my name in print and be noteworthy. And I think that's where most journalism goes awry is there's this fight for attention instead of the fight for the truth. Uh, because journalism is supposed to be about chasing the leads down, like deep diving into fact checks, 
question everything. I love the the scene when we're with uh, Pinnenberg and Andy Fox, um, Steve Zahn and Rosario Dawson, who are playing uh, the Forbes online. And they have this moment whenever Charles gives them the phone number to Jute, Mike Tronics or whatever, Mike Chronics. And he's like, he, he looks at Adam, looks at Andy and he's like, hey, call this number at the same time that I call. Five, 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 blah, blah, blah. And they punch it in. One of them gets a busy signal. The other gets a voicemail. He's like, they hang up. Okay, hit redial on three. He does it again. There's this absolute attention to detail. There is nothing that's going to be missed. That's such an incredibly witty thing to think about. Like, something's weird about this. Let me just see if they have multiple phone lines. (laughs) This phone number only has one line. That is not a million dollar company. Uh, There's zero, zero chance for that. And that's just one way to expose it. And so another cool thing about journalism movies is they're supposed to teach us something about the the process. Uh, And then in this case, it's critical to the story, the fact checking process. And I I love that he points it out. He's the one that calls it out, which helps us understand that, of course, he knows about it. He's exploiting it, which is that there's a hole in the fact checking process in that the only source material available are the notes provided by the reporter. And that can't be fact checked. So if you don't have any other sources and that becomes the only source of your information, it's beyond repute and it's taking as a fact. And so throughout the film and what's cool about that is throughout the film, he's actually saying he says this one thing again and again and again. And it's it's in my notes. I don't. I, yeah, I don't know. It's in my notes. And they're out and about. He's like, you're sure there's 100, 200 people there? Yeah, yeah, there's 100. Yeah, I don't know. It's in my notes. Like he just keeps referring to his notes because that is supposed to be your your chronicle of what you're witnessing in the moment that is happening. And that's such a valuable, irrefutable thing that's beyond repute. Mm-hmm. And he exploits it um, by just filling it up with bullshit. And, and it's so funny because that kind of thing, I can, I can tell you as a producer myself, I can tell you that anytime someone says that's in my notes, it's bullshit because... <laughs> If you're, if you're that, if you have that much attention to detail, and if you're a writer who's like, you're living and breathing your story for weeks, months, sometimes you're going to know how many people were there. If it was a hundred or 200 or 150, you're going to know it's 157 people were there. You don't need to say it was in your notes. You're going to remember that. I'm just, I'm just a small producer for a, a, a company here. Like, and I remember stuff like that. I don't ever say I've never once said it's in my notes. Like, you know, and these are, these are projects that I work on for like a, a few weeks and they're done, but I know everything about them. Like, so if you're writing it and you're going out and meeting people and like, you know, going to dinners and like interviewing people, you're going to remember the granular stuff like that. You know, it might be, something that might be a good, a good reason to say it was in my notes might be like a very long quote that you need verbatim, right. That you just don't remember verbatim, but like details that are very simple that you can remember, like, it's just ridiculous. And he did it the whole time. I, I, it's, it's so weird because I, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, Oh, I totally would have seen through it. And maybe, you know, I wouldn't, but I would never like the guy. That's for damn sure. And everybody liked him. Yeah. It was, yeah. I yeah. think that was what was annoying to me was that everybody liked him. Yeah. That kind of that. person is really difficult to be around. It's just, 
it's over it's yeah you're right i mean it just comes off as completely fake uh and i'm just not likely to want to be around that person not because not yeah. even, maybe not even because i don't believe them but probably because they just come across as trying too hard and yeah people who try too hard are just they're very difficult they're draining it just becomes very draining to maintain uh their emotions for them uh, and that's yeah. that's effectively what's happening there he's asking you to kind of carry his his happiness for you for him and that's just yeah exhausting man <laughs> you can only yeah. maintain yeah. that <laughs> shit man uh yeah so one of the the things that you know i was hoping to discuss and i was really wanting to bring on a journalist so i could ask some very you know big pointed questions and unfortunately maybe we'll have a follow-up episode after everything dies down because i also understand asking journalists right before an election for their time very tall order um and so i wasn't like mm-hmm. super disappointed you know i was i was hopeful but uh not like shocked <laughs> like that's not a shocking revelation yeah. for sure but some of the things like I, I i was curious just to have a conversation about was the state of journalism today there's a interesting idea about journalism which is uh this kind of ideology that it's the fourth estate which if you don't know what the fourth estate is referencing, it's the idea that, you know, looking, let's look specifically at our government structure. Uh, there's three branches of our government. If anyone's ever been in whatever civics or government uh, class, uh, which is, you know, you have your, your legislative branch, uh, the Congress, right? The, the house and uh, the Senate and Congress. Um, and then you have your judicial branch, right? The, the court system headed ultimately by the Supreme court, but there's, you know, tons and tons, there's like 5,000 circuits beneath them. Uh, and then, you know, the, uh, the, not the legislative, the, the presidential branch, uh, escaping me, the executive, thank you, the executive branch. And so you have these three branches that are supposed to be checks and balances on each other. Uh, and the fourth estate, the fourth column, if you will, is our media is our ability to analyze and investigate them and to hold them accountable as public office holders. And I would be interested. I mean, you can, you're more than welcome to weigh in on how you think, uh, the, the state of journalism, the fourth estate is holding on right now. But from my perspective, it's not great. Uh, I'll run down just a few reasons why this is getting mostly opinionated. I, I would certainly have facts, but I, it'll be a mixture of facts and my interpretation of those facts. So I want people to understand that coming in the next I know three minutes is going to be that. <laughs> so fast forward if you don't want to hear me get things wrong or whatever, you know, whatever pleases you. But it seems like uh, one of the big issues that I, that I personally have with, you know, media coverage is that even whenever it's quote unquote good coverage and whenever it's something topical that I think is relevant and matters, mostly it's them just reciting what they're told by the government. Like there's no real investigative journalism that goes on by the major, major outlets. And one of the, the things that I think is just front and center for me right now, I'm a massive Glenn Greenwald fan. I've been following him since uh, he got picked up by Salon in like 2007, 2008, somewhere around there. He's a lawyer who started his own blog. It got became prevalent and he got picked up and he went into full time journalism um, at, from being a lawyer. And so you may recognize him as being the guy uh, who broke the Edward Snowden story on 
mass data collection by the CIA and uh, NSA. And he went and founded alongside Jeremy Scahill and Laura Portress, uh, The Intercept, which is supposed to be this independent investigative journalism outlet that is beyond, uh, not just beyond repute, but beyond censorship. Because you get to some of these other outlets and the editorial staff might censor who's you know, trying to write a piece because they don't like the way it sounds or what have you. Not based on facts, mind you, but based on uh, its impact. And that is a scary idea, which I will make understood here in a minute. But Glenwald, uh, Green, Glenn Greenwald just left The Intercept because he was being censored by his own outlet that he founded for wanting to run a piece that was critical of Joe Biden just prior to the election. There's this whole story that's been going on in the background, if you will, about Hunter Biden's laptop, which certainly has, you know, all kinds of sketchy things around it. But he was just presenting facts like, hey, there's a there's an issue here. For one, the media isn't covering this thing, which is bad on its own. And then you have, you know, some outlets that are trying to squash a story in its entirety without actually debunking it. Uh, that's one of the scary things is that no one's actually said or proven or even claimed to my knowledge that these are not real documents. <laughs> these are for all intents and purposes right now. These look to be actual real documents. We can certainly argue the relevance of them. I'm OK with that. But if some of these documents show that, you know, there may have been a meeting with our presidential nominee, Biden and Burisma, this Ukrainian gas energy company, whatever. I don't really particularly care to find a bunch of that information on its own, highly influential on how I'm going to vote or even what I think of Biden. What I find scary is the fact that the media isn't covering it with the same scrutiny and level of attention that they've put to Trump. Trump deserves all the scrutiny and attention to, that, you know, he he should be getting, even though at times it's gone way off course and awry, like the whole Russiagate thing is just nonsense. He never colluded. I never for once believed that he colluded. There was never any evidence that he colluded. But if you were to turn on MSNBC or CNN or some of these companies, you would have thought that this is a foregone conclusion when it's been anything but proven. And so there's this really big gap. And the reason why I love Glenn Greenwald so much is because He's like a gay liberal man who is fighting against other liberals. He is not beyond because whenever he became famous, he was holding the, the torch to, to George Bush's feet whenever over the Iraq war and the way that that war was being run. And, you know, of course, everyone on the left, all the liberals were like cheerleading, like, yeah, he's like, go get him. And then when Obama came to office. He didn't stop. The rest of everyone else on the left stopped holding mm -hmm. our president accountable when Obama got in office, except Glenn Greenwald. And this is why I fell in love with him uh, as a journalist, because it didn't matter to him who it was. Truth was going to be truth no matter what. And I have so much respect for him. And so now he's out of his own outlet because they wanted to censor him literally because they didn't like the way it would reflect on Biden's chances of being elected, uh, which is not a good reason mm -hmm. to to avoid a story. That's not what journalism is there to do. You're not there to decide what's newsworthy. You're just there to report it right. um, and scrutinize mm -hmm. it. Another thing that scares me about the state of journalism is if you look at what happened with Stephen Glass, he's even as an attorney now, he's, he went to Georgetown Law, got his law degree, he's still having a hard time getting work and being taken seriously. I, I think I have an article that I'll link 
uh, in the show notes that describes how life has been since, you know, this whole thing broke and he's having a very difficult time. And what scares me <laughs> is that he can't get work or he has a very difficult time. Rightly so. I'm not like, you know, hellbent on that. If you're, if you're a lawyer and your big history is that you fabricated outright massive numbers of, you know, publication pieces. Yeah. You're, you should probably find a new line of work. <laughs> like that's, mm-hmm. that's not a good look, but yeah, by contrast, uh, you have CNN who hires James Clapper as a, a correspondent frequently, and they bring him on as a, a guest correspondent. And what's insane about that is Clapper was the director of national intelligence who lied under oath to Congress about the bulk data collection of what Edward Snowden would later break. He was asked point blank, are y'all collecting data on U.S. citizens? He's like, no, not wittingly. Like, no, y'all were intentionally doing it. What are you talking about? And despite this being proven, and that's the whole reason, that was one of, you should read Permanent Record if you haven't. It's a very, very good read by, by Edward Snowden that will give you insight into why he did what he did, the whole process. He does a great job of explaining it all. Uh, I read it when he released it earlier this year. Fantastic book. Um, one of my few heroes that I have. And he what he describes, you know, watching Clapper testify, and he's just kind of in disbelief. He looks around at his buddies as they're all hacking and like collecting all this data that this guy is saying doesn't exist. And yet CNN, he's never been tried. He's never been held accountable for the lies to Congress. And not only that, but CNN brings him on as someone, I guess, worth being an arbiter of truth. Like that is peak insanity. And so that's just one example. There are many others that I'm sure Glenn and Edward Snowden could uh, fill everyone in on. Um, But then just generally speaking, there's very lazy fact checking in the media. Then this is kind of the other thing that scares me. No one uh, is above this, by the way. I mean, New York Times was a big reason we got into the 2003 war uh, in Iraq. Uh, If you go look up Judith Miller, uh, she basically quotes like, intelligence sources that are unnamed and unsourced. Um, and that was one of the big things that like Colin Powell and the, the administration held up as, look, we have proof that there's, there's a smoking gun. Like we, we have evidence, uh, look at this, you know, Judith Miller article. And this was one of the very linchpins of, you know, us going to war in Iraq, um, that we still haven't recovered from. And so you look at, I mean, fine, that was 2003, but even current day like they just ran like a few months ago i remember i was listening to uh the daily that they were covering coronavirus and they were covering this really messed up heartbreaking story about a guy who went to a covid party that was effectively trying to disprove uh the coronavirus exists like hey we're gonna go to we're all gonna have a party we're gonna party with someone who has the virus and uh it's not gonna be that bad watch what that's a thing no it's not this is the whole point it's not a fucking thing but i will link you to resources that people were running with it as if it was a thing oh because they weren't fact checking they weren't actually doing their investigative journalism yeah and so the new york times the daily runs a story about a guy in san antonio who goes to one of these covid parties and Again, I'll link it just in case I'm butchering a a minor thing here or there or definition or what have you. But effectively, this guy goes to a party, he gets infected. And on his deathbed, he he confesses, you know, something along the lines of, 
I didn't know I was, it was a lie. I didn't know, you know, something to that effect. And the, this is presented as truth and fact on the daily because it was presented in a story uh, by a San Antonio newspaper and no one ever fact checked it. It just became, and if you tried to check fact check it, it became like a story within the hospital. Yo, yeah, no, I know for a fact it happened. Like my friend heard it. She was there. Okay. Well, who's your friend? Mm-hmm. Oh, here's, uh, here she is. Yeah. So you heard this thing? No, no, no. I, I wasn't there, but my other friend, she was there. She, she heard it and it just becomes this game of telephone that never ends. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was never a source. This thing for all intents and purposes, looks like it never actually happened because no one's ever come forward and said, yeah, that was me. This is the person, this is the guy. And here's the party. There's no ex- uh, evidence of any of these existence of COVID parties or what have you. Not to say that people haven't gone out with the assumption that they wouldn't get sick. Yeah, we know there's idiots that are like running around and like throwing house parties. That's not what we're talking about. There is a very explicit intention of like we're getting parties in order to get sick or disprove coronavirus or, yeah. or whatever it is. And so, yeah, that's just kind of symptomatic because that, that's one example. The Times eventually ran like a light retraction. That's one of those things that I really loved about this film is the idea that they ran a massive protraction, uh, a retraction of their their articles. Uh, nowadays, New York Times even does a very bad job of re- running retractions. I think they did a decent one recently with the 1619 project where they're like, OK, we got a thing wrong here. Uh, we'll, we'll print a retraction here. Uh, but on average, it seems like most media outlets are more than willing to just bury their mistakes instead of uh, outright own up to them. Uh, because right now claiming or showing uh, vulnerability is tantamount to uh, shutting down your your newspaper um, or so it is in their minds. Like I for me, nothing makes me respect someone more and want to pay attention to them more than saying, hey, I screwed up. I got a thing wrong mm-hmm. because we're all we're all human, man. Those things are going to happen. Things are going to slip through the cracks. Uh, I never hold anybody, you know, in ill opinion if they say, ah, I screwed up. I'm sorry. Uh, now, if you say it 30 times in a row, yeah, I'm going to start to doubt the validity of your apology. But don't do you? Yeah, I get it. Do you think, though, that there is an attack on the media? I mean, I feel like that is a bad word now. The media like mm. it, it just it feels like anytime anybody says the media, there's so many things that are wrong with it. One, it completely generalizes anything that has anything to do with information, right? So the media is a website. The media media is a newspaper. The media is uh, a, a magazine. The media is like anything that's in print, right? Or anybody who goes around asking questions to get information, like that's all the media. And now all of a sudden those are the bad guys. And look, I get the idea. I do get the idea of like, okay, CNN is one a specific side. They are left. Fox is a specific side. It is right. I get that, right? And how problematic that is. But that's always going to exist. It existed before and it's going to exist moving forward. So I think that this whole the media is the bad guy situation, one, has mainly arisen in this, this Trump culture Right. And I'm not being anti or pro Trump right now. I'm just Mm -hmm. saying like he has been the one who's come out and said, you are the bad guys. 
you are the ones ruining this country. Okay. No. I mean, yes, they could do a better job, but in any job, you could do a better job. How about not have police who are racist and, you know, pull black people over more than white people? You know, how about like, like if I was a teacher and I did things wrong severely, like, and, and like racially things wrong, I would get, I would be fired. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, if I, if I printed things that were purposely wrong, I would be fired. Right. So anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that I feel like it's more of a political thing that is being said to people by someone who is in the highest office saying, these are the guys who are, who are messing with our country and making it awful. And, and then, so then you have the, all of these really good people, just like police officers, you have all these really good people mixed in with these other people who are idiots, who are not doing, you know, enough research or, 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 you know, spewing out like, you know, biased stuff, um, because of their network and, and mixed in with good people who like get into journalism because they love the truth and, and finding facts and like putting that out there. And I think the majority are people like that are just like, I think the majority of, of cops are good. I think the majority of people who are in, in the media or publishing really want to do good and they want to, the truth to be out there you know, but then you have a lot of red tape. I know like, like, oh, you can't run that story because of this and you can't run that story because of that and, and all that stuff. But, you know, I think that it just gets a bad rap and I don't pretend to know anything about it. It's one of those things where it's like, I try to stay away from it because Mm -hmm. I don't know enough about it. I'm not in the world enough. And, and it's so convoluted and it's so hard to know if something is right or not right. I got to find the news about my news, you know, and then I got to find the news about the news about the news. Where does it, where does it stop? Where is the actual truth? You know? And, and I think once you start, it's, I, I feel like it started with the question or not the question, but the, the, the stigma It started with assigning a stigma to a group, right. To the media. And once you assign that stigma, anything anybody does that's incorrect, all of a sudden enhances that stigma, brings it out, makes it worse. And because people are people and they get stuff wrong and they do, and they do bad things, it's even more, it's even easier to generalize the entire media as bad. So I don't pretend to know is I guess what I'm saying, you know, but it just is. Yeah. I think you're right. I mean, from the standpoint of, you know, Trump being an issue of uh, calling into question the veracity of, of the media and, you know, fake news, all that, all that stuff. But here's but the problem is they shouldn't let him be right about it. Like, it's one thing to be called a liar. It's another thing. Yeah. To be lying. <laughs> like uh, Because yeah. on the one hand, Trump, I am not a fan, to put it lightly, like. I would gladly throw him in jail and along with the last several presidents in jail, I have very ill uh, opinions about all of them and not the least of him. The the crazy thing about Trump versus, let's say, Obama, even though Obama was uh, like a to me a really terrible president in terms of policy and uh, actions, 
everyone loves him because he was, you know, a, a sharp intellectual guy and like just heady, right? You could sit there and have a conversation about him that goes from constitutional theory all the way through, you know, basketball game, teams. NBA player of all time. Yeah. yeah. Like, like he is yeah. so freaking smart um, and personable and charming and able to uh, tackle an argument from, you know, and this comes from training as a lawyer, I'm sure being able to tackle an argument from all, all sides. And whereas Trump has just kind of two buttons, flattery and like, rage <laughs> he doesn't know how to do anything else um and yeah. that's that's him as a manipulator uh he doesn't have all the tools that say uh, stephen glass does he he has maybe half of them and so whenever he starts like calling cnn fake news well they that should be their sign to double down on getting thing everything absolutely right and whenever they abdicate that responsibility they're putting themselves out there and vulnerable um it's their job to make sure that they're running factual uh statements regardless of it became as very early on a personal vendetta for for them uh and it really sucked because even though i didn't ever think cnn was like the perfect journalism uh, outfit they were going to be the one place that i went to uh if i was just curious about what was going on right now and i'm like okay i know it's not going to be perfect yeah. but it'll give me a roundabout idea of how things are going and now i'm like i there's no i mean c-span i guess i don't know who i would turn on right now uh just to get a general idea uh, because obviously fox news and msnbc are just completely you know, uh, on the extremes, you don't expect to hear anything, you know, remotely real on, on either one of those channels, or at least I don't No. And so no. I think the, the problem though, is no one ever gets penalized. Journalists never get penalized for getting it wrong. They get rewarded for being first. And so the bigger the story that you can make very much like what Stephen Glass does and figure it out later the better you're going to get rewarded for that. You never get rewarded for just taking your time and completing the facts. Uh, and so until we as a society start rewarding people for getting the story, you're right. Instead of getting it out there first, uh, we're going to keep getting, uh, the, the same kind of, you know, journalism because there are people out there that are doing amazing jobs. I love Matt Taibbi. I think, uh, he's an excellent writer and journalist. I've already mentioned Glenn there's documentary filmmakers like Laura Portress and Errol Morris. Like there's really good, uh, people who are actually interested in the truth that, you know, that are out there. Uh, I think one of the, the, the things is as a society, we also need to get better at discerning good journalism from bad because CNN can still put out really great pieces. Uh, New York times can still put out really thorough, incredible work. And it's on us to be able to understand whenever we're getting all facets of a story instead of one side. And that's usually for me, whenever I'm reading any story uh, and I get like an, a, an amalgamation of different news sources. Uh, I don't rely on any one source. Um, I'm constantly reading and I get a digest in the morning that I kind of scroll through that gives me a synopsis. And I have other aggregate news aggregators that I'll scrub through. Usually it's more tech and science stuff. And the, the big political stories are just going to come to me one way or another. They're going to fit squeeze through one of these holes. Um, and whenever I'm reading those stories, the thing that I'm always curious is what are both sides of this story? Even if both sides aren't weighted equally as, as far as like 
should we have gone into Iraq? Like to me, that's a very clear no, but I still want to hear the the pro side. Why should we have gone into Iraq? If I'm reading a story that never, let's say that the whole situation is starting all over again, and we don't know if they have weapons of mass destruction or not, I want to hear the case for, well, could they? Of course I do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to hear the strongest case. I want to hear the strongest case why they probably don't or why they may not. I want to know both sides of that story. And if what you're reading is only going to give you like these straw man arguments that are very easy to knock out, uh, then this is not a good story. This is not good journalism. And that's what most of what you're seeing on television is. It's straw man arguments. You never really come across good faith arguments that are genuinely trying to understand the opposition, the other side of the story. Um, and this is what's really gone off the rails in our, in our culture is nobody ever wants to give a good faith argument to their opponents. If we're going to have a conversation about whatever, about, about abortion, like it's really easy to, to look at, uh, pro-choice people and just say oh they just want to kill babies like what is that the argument um but likewise uh that might be the effect babies you know unborn fetuses however you want to you know position it that might be the effect that you know unborn children die that is but that's not the intention there's a very different reality just like if you know we were to analyze pro-life you might the reductive reasoning is, oh, they just want to control women's bodies. That's very reductive and it's not very honest approach on why they believe, you know, pro-life is the better, the better, you know, uh, option, if you will. <laughs> um, it's just reductive yeah. and it's not going to really help you understand the other side. It's not going to bridge that gap. Not that that's really a gap that can be bridged. I'm not suggesting I'm about to like usher in a new wave of understanding (laughs) and the third rail of uh, American politics. But I think, you know, just this inability to try to understand where the other person's coming from the other uh, side of the story. If that's not being represented in the the journalism that you're consuming, then you're probably consuming bad journalism. Um, Because I want to know what the contradictory opinion is. And whenever I read an article that says, you know, uh, the, the sky is falling right now, then I want to read the, the argument that says, here's why the sky isn't going to fall. And that'll give me at least two perspectives of what's going on. And then I can start to discern reality somewhere along there. If I care enough about the issue, then there's probably more articles and more information I can find. Uh, but I never just stop at a headline. That's what most of us do these days, right? We just read a headline and think we understand the story. Uh, um, that up, what is it upworthy, you know, kind of clickbaity uh, headline Mm -hmm. garbage. That's, we got to stop that. We can't just look at headlines and assume we understand what's going on. You got to read the article or pretend you didn't see it. One or the other. I don't know. Those are just some of my, my thoughts on the state of journalism today. Uh, I hope no one unsubscribed. (laughs) I think we'd know. Yeah. So with that, uh, any final thoughts, comments on this movie? We'll get into our other third rail stuff here in a minute. I have no idea. Any any other thoughts on Shattered Glass? Not really. I mean, you know, I, I think I mentioned it all at the beginning. Yeah. Didn't like it at the beginning. Really enjoyed it at the end. All 90% because of Peter Sarsgaard. I just loved his character. Uh, I thought that the, the cinematography was good because I didn't really notice it too much. Um, it was, uh, it was well edited and, and interesting, you know, at times mm-hmm. I'm not a big Hayden Christensen fan. Um, it has nothing to do with, uh, 
Star Wars that can separate the the movie from the actor. Usually, maybe not always, but I just I find his acting flat. Just gotta be honest. Sorry, Hayden. And uh, so I question that casting a little bit, hmm. but I don't know. You know, I'm not I'm not saying I would have done any better, but I love that they had Rosario Dawson in there and Z- Steve Zahn. Like it was just you know. I really liked most of the cast and thought the acting, you know, was really good, you know, from all of those, those characters. And in the end, I, I enjoyed the end. That scene that you played was the best scene in the whole movie because I was, I I was, uh, uh, what's her name? Chloe Savigny. Yeah. I was, I was like the whole time I was like, does she like him? Are they together? Like, why is she defending him so much? Why is everyone like so heartbroken that he's, that he's been, he's been, uh, uh, what, what was it? Uh, before he was fired, he was, yeah, he was suspended and they were, they were all so mad, so mad at Lane. And I was, especially her, I was like, why is everyone, are you kidding me? He faked, this was when everyone knew that he faked one, right? Yeah. Before they right. knew everything. And so, and so having this conversation needed to happen for me. I was mm. like, somebody needs to tell this woman like the, tr- what is going on? Cause she has no idea the, the extent. Right. And I love the scene where so, he comes back into his office and they wrote, like they all got together and they started working on it and they wrote him an apology letter. I love oh. that too. It was almost like accepting him as the, as the boss finally, yeah. right. As the editor. You know, but and then him to sit down and sit and say, I thought I was going to have to explain this guy to you. It was just perfect writing. It was really the writing good. is amazing. So th- I was really blown away. I looked up the director who uh, wrote the screenplay and he's written some incredible films like his his lineup is pretty badass. Uh, just to go through some of the, the high notes, Richard Jewell, which you and I saw uh, the fantastic uh, overlord, which is pretty good. Uh, Captain Phillips. The Hunger Games, State of Play, Breach, really damn good stuff, man. Wow! Yeah, like he's Holy. he's and I, I didn't include them all, but uh, he's got a pretty. How did I not know? I know. Never heard of this guy. Never like that is not a name I I will try not to forget from here on out, man. That's that guy is killing it. Yeah, um, it's awesome. Yeah, I, I agree about the cinematography. I mean, it's it's solid. I think it's very serviceable. She has gone on to do some pretty fantastic work herself. I. Uh, I think she shot Mulan and a bunch of other really big films. I'll see if I can pull oh, it Oh, the new one? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, she is absolutely killing I can't it. wait to see that. I know, it, I know it's out now. Yeah, same. I'm excited about that. She shot uh, Australia, Hidden Figures, which was beautiful, even if I, I didn't care for it as a movie. Great story. Yes, what else does she have? Uh, come on, Jane Got a Gun. Indie film, but uh, pretty solid. The Mountain Between Us. Oh, my God. That was a gorgeous movie. I, yeah, that that's with Idris Elba and um, Kate Winslet, and it takes place in the mountains. Beautiful. Anyway, the cinematography, I think, despite what she out. could have done, she did the, a very smart job of this is about a news uh, journalism. And so let's make everything very easy uh, to digest, easy to, because if you're reading an article, right? The text pops out. It's black text on white pages. It's very easy to read. You understand exactly what the story is trying to communicate. And so I feel like she shot this kind of like you would, uh, you know, write a story, uh, just very mm-hmm. simple and easy to digest. But yeah, 
that said, um, cool. what are you going to recommend this week? Uh, I'm going to recommend another movie kind of like that, not like this, but another like uh, media movie, I guess, uh, called The Big Short, which we haven't actually done yet. Mm-hmm. And we should because it is it's it's really good. Christian Bale's in it and um, about the housing housing crash of 2008. Nice. I am going to recommend Glenn Greenwald's new Substack. Uh, it's where you can find his journalism right now. I'll link it in the show notes. I have so much respect for that guy. I can't even tell you. Um, and so Substack is kind of this place where you can support journalists who have, for whatever reason, not found quite as much acceptance in the you know the the main outlets and so this is their opportunity mm-hmm. to speak unfettered um matt taibbi's on there as well and i am currently paying for glenn's new 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 work new publishing and i believe he's working on a new uh outlet that will try to once again uh create an atmosphere that allows for good journalism no matter what the the consequences of reporting reporting the truth are, uh, the truth is valuable. And so, yeah, stay tuned. Good. N- next week, we are going to be covering Primer and starting a new series on small films or at least early films. And this is me trying to study and understand how to maybe make my first movie. And so we're going to start a series kind of studying smaller films and early successes. And uh, I'd like to cover things like Primer, of course, but also maybe Brick uh, by Ryan Johnson or maybe Wes Anderson's first movie, Bottle Rocket. We've had a couple of people, you know, mention that we should cover that. So maybe we'll eventually get to that. And a handful of others, like uh, maybe a Goodwill Hunting, like even though that had a pretty decent budget and an amazing director, it was also written by two no-name actors um, that had not really had any breakout success. And so, uh, yeah, I think uh, this is going to be a fun series that we'll probably be dipping in and out of uh, over the next few months. I mean, we'll take some breaks because uh, I got to let Todd Todd have some popcorn movies here and there. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, I know. I mean, one good thing to say about that, um, I'm I'm excited about that. So I want to make a quick shout out to our buddy, David Blue Garcia, who just had an amazing experience. This is the guy who's, he's a, a cinematographer here in Austin. I've, we both worked with him, mm-hmm. you know, at times uh, I've worked with him dozens of times, just fantastic cinematographer. And he was starting to get more into directing. And last year he put 60 grand of his own money into making his, his own movie. Yeah, a movie that he wrote called Tejano, called Tejano um, and which I, I think you it's can on see HBO. on HBO. I yep. think it's on HBO. Yeah. yeah. Um, so HBO bought it, which was re- really cool. But then um, it was about a month ago or so, I get a text. Hey, did you hear from my old boss? Hey, did you hear about David? I said, what? He said, he got the call. He got a call from uh, uh, Legendary Pictures. Legendary Pictures, thank you. Who, who their director for the the next uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie fell off, and they called him. They literally just called him on a Friday, Saturday afternoon. He's on a plane to Bulgaria. <laughs> Unbelievable. 
Like incredible. And this is the, I'm telling you, this is a guy who, this is a situation where it's like, there is no, you know, you have no vision of the path to where you want to go. And then it just happens. Right. I'm not saying that that's going to happen for everybody. I'm not saying that that's going to happen for me or for you or for anybody listening, but I am saying it does happen. And so be on your a game with everything you freaking do. You never know when that call is going to come and then what the hell you're going to do. You know, if you were to get that call tomorrow, would you be ready? Like, that's the thing. Just always be ready because it can happen. And, it, and I, I haven't talked to him since he got back. He got back. I think it was last week or something like that a couple weeks ago, but I know that he's posted about it and it's been, he said it was an amazing experience. So, uh, yeah, shout out to David blue. Yeah. Anyway. Same man. That guy. So, so happy for him. Like I've, yeah, I got to work with him once just, uh, the last thing I shot in June, the, the film, the 45 minute short film, if you will, <laughs> or long or yeah. either short feature or long short. Like, I don't know how you want to, but yeah, he helped short me shoot, uh, uh, parts of that, you know, all the 2d stuff we shot here in Austin, he was my DP for it. And so super happy for that guy. Um, yeah, good, yeah, man. good call. Um, so yeah, stay tuned. We'll be tackling, tackling a lot of these films. Um, and don't forget to subscribe whatever on itunes or stitcher or wherever you listen uh, to your podcast don't forget to subscribe and drop us a review uh, and if you want us to cover a film um then you know let us know and if you want to comment on this uh, episode in particular you can do that at the pestlepodcast.com slash shattered glass and our quote of the day that we leave you with is from glenn greenwald the term propaganda rings melodramatic and exaggerated but a press that, whether from fear, careerism, or conviction, uncritically recites false government claims and reports them as fact, or treats elected officials with a reverence reserved for royalty, cannot be accurately described as engaged in any other function. Wow, that is a smart, that is, that is a smart dude. That dude is so it's unbelievable. Good. And so, last episode, I teased that you know I'd give Todd and maybe myself, I didn't really prepare much, but if you want to, you know, take five minutes to give us a piece of your mind on state of America, politics, Trump, Biden, you know, your toilet bowl in the house, whatever, like uh, the, mm-hmm. the chain is off uh, to say as you like. And, no. and if everyone wants to end the conversation here, you know, thanks for tuning in, but uh, I think hey, we'll, yeah, we'll right. each uh, say whatever, you know, comes to mind. So, Yeah. Um, I'll just, I'll keep it very short. I'll keep it very short. Uh, so my dad is a, uh, both my parents are Trump supporters. I'm not. And it's, it's very interesting because anytime I have a conversation with him, he always says things like, like, um, uh, you Democrats (laughs) or, or, you know, you liberals or whatever. And I have to keep telling him that I'm not a Democrat. I just hate Donald Trump. I don't know what to tell you. I said, I said, and I told him this all the time. I said, last year, the last election, if Kasich would have won the nomination, I would have voted for him in a second over Hillary Clinton in a second. I I just didn't like Hillary. Even my wife knows I've told her, like, I don't like Hillary Clinton. There's nothing about her that makes me want to vote for her. Nothing. But Kasich, I I liked. And the reason is, and this is what I'm getting at. The reason is, is because I can see through that bullshit. I 
I absolutely can see through it. And I'm not saying I see, I see through all of it, right? But that's part of the reason why I could not stand Stephen Glass's character in this movie. Was that I could see through it, like completely. And I hated it. I hate the fakeness. I hate you telling me what you think I want to hear. I hate the, the not knowing whether or not you're serious. The understanding that nobody is like that and real at the same time. So what I'm getting from you is not real. And so you are giving me less than what I'm giving you because I'm always going to give somebody my real, like who I am in that moment. If I don't want to be there, probably going to know it. You're at least going to feel it. Right. And so anyway, so my point is, is that, is that I can see through bullshit. And I think that, that to me, Donald Trump is all of that. I hate the way that he talks. I hate the, the things that he won't say, you know, he won't condemn uh, white supremacists and, and, and he talks, he says terrible things. And if, if nothing else, just for the sound bites, he loves attention. He's such a nepotistic person. And like, it, it just, there's nothing about him that makes me want to vote for him. Nothing. It's not much about Biden that makes me want to vote for him either, but he's not Trump. So there's that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing, the, the thing, other thing I want to say, and then I'll stop is that the the biggest problem with not just politics, but with the media in general is money. Let's just say it. That is it. If you were able some, and you can't, you can't, but if you were able in some far off distant universal land or whatever, maybe, maybe the, the large hedron collider erases this universe and a new universe arises and we can get rid of money in media and in politics. I think the, I think it would be a completely different scenario, right? The only reason why politicians are there to get real is to get reelected. The only reason that, that CNN and that Fox and that CNBC and that MSNBC and that all of these news outlets do what they do is because they want to be first and they want ratings to make money on ads. That is it, right? And the reason they want to be first is because of, I mean, you got, how else can you beat Twitter? You can't, how else can you be? It's immediate. It's literally like, like, Oh, we want to write that. Oh, it's already been written by 5,000 people on Twitter. You know, like you cannot beat it. So be better than it. That's supposed to be the point, right? Is that I can tweet something, but it's 140 characters. If I want to know the meat, that's why I will go to CNN. That's why I will go to MSNBC, wherever, because I want the meat of, of that. You know, I'm not going to go to Twitter for that. So you're never going to be first. So stop trying to be first. Stop trying to make the dollar, chasing the dollar. Like be real and who you are. And when you screw up, admit it and move on. You know, I can't, I think it all has to do with money, you know? And I, if I, if some way you could pull money out of it, even just for a week, you would see a completely different world not just a completely different industry or completely different government, but completely different world because those are the things that affect our lives the most government and the media. Are you kidding me? Like, yeah, I don't know. I'm not going to go on a soapbox anymore. I just, 
um, uh, yeah, that's it. I'm going to stop there. Yeah. I mean, I don't feel terribly different, I guess. I mean, definitely not a fan of Trump. Like, uh, I'm that's, I feel like it's pretty easy to hate that guy. I think it's pretty easy to hate most politicians in general, because I think you're right. I mean, politicians exist and this is kind of covered in 1984 power seeks power for its own purpose. It's power is just there to have more power. Like there's, there's really, and so, you know, you, that's a, that's always a big factor whenever you're trying to understand the motivations of a politician. Um, it's, it's just to get elected. <laughs> like You don't have to come up with some crazy, you know, scheme or, you know, whatever, uh, they're, they're there to just be elected so that they can have power, maybe influence, maybe set themselves up for a nice life after they retire from politics. Um, as most of these people do, they go on to work at these companies and they become lobbyists. And, uh, yeah, I completely, yeah. And so my spiel, I guess will be like, I'm more of a third party person. Uh, I'm sure anyone who listens with a high regularity will not be surprised by that. Um, I, I, I get, there's a few questions that usually get labeled or thrown at me whenever it's like, why vote for a third party? Um, why vote for someone who can't win? And so that usually makes me chuckle. I mean, it's it's true. I'm not denying that. But I find it funny because you're effectively saying I'm throwing my vote away um, when most states are overwhelmingly one party. So by that same standard, uh, most votes don't count. <laughs> like, Does your vote really matter in the first place? <laughs> Very good point. Um, Very good point. But there's also a, a question of winning uh, practically versus technically. Libertarians, Green Party can technically win because they're on enough ballots in enough states to if those votes were there, they could become elected um, as opposed to someone like Kanye, right? He's not on any ballots. He can't win on a technical level. Um, there's just no way for him to get enough write-ins uh, that's beyond the the, the pale. Um, now, practically, no, you know, third party candidates can't win. That's just not going to happen. But the question is, why? Why isn't that going to happen? Why can't third parties win? Um, and I think that is at the core of why I do vote th uh, for a third party, which is uh, the, the duopoly Republicans, Democrats coordinate to make it impossible for third parties to win. And so this year, four years ago and four years from now, whenever you ask this question, not you, Todd, but like the, the royal you, man. <laughs> <laughs> Royally. Uh, whenever you ask this question of why can't why don't we have a good candidates you know why, why can't we ever have a good two good candidates to vote for and it's because they prevent competition in order to get quality products in the in the marketplace you have to have competition the the reason you know macs are as good as they are right now is because they had to fight against going out of business the reason, you know, your car runs as well as it does right now is because they have to fight to make better cars. Um, there's a process in, in the free market of creating better things in order to stay alive, whereas Democrats and Republicans have no competition because they have a monopoly on the electoral process. They make it so incredibly difficult for third parties to get on ballots in every single state they make it incredibly hard to get uh, there's federal funding. People probably don't know this that goes to Republicans and Democrats that's available technically, 
to third parties like uh, libertarians and uh, and the Green Party if you can get X percentage of national votes. And of course, they never meet that that standard, so they don't really get that funding. So after you spend thousands of man hours um, and get whatever, 100,000 people uh, to coordinate and get on all 50 ballots in all 50 states and spend millions of dollars to do so, that process is so laborious that an upstart has no chance to actually fund a very good campaign. Uh, But then on top of that, they don't allow third parties to participate in the presidential debates. Mm -hmm. They prevent them from doing that. And the reason they do is because the last time that happened to them, in 1992, there was a guy named Ross Perot. He came out right. onto the stage. He ended up getting, I forget what it was, 10 or 15% of the vote. It was a, a crazy amount of the vote. Substantial. Yeah. yeah. And it, it caused uh, the incumbent, George H.W. Bush, to lose his election uh, to Bill Clinton, who probably shouldn't have won. Like if Perot wasn't there, incumbents don't usually lose re-election. Like Trump losing tomorrow mm-hmm. or whatever in the next month, however long it takes for this process, that's atypical. Usually incumbents win. Um, that's part of the game. Uh, go with the devil, you know, so they say. And that's yeah. usually what the population does, unless you're you know, like a really, really bad president and you don't win or you're just very, very unpopular. You, know, you can be a good president and be unpopular. Those things do happen. And so sure. the uh, the. Because he he did that, which, by the way, is why Bill Clinton was able to balance the budget like there was obviously a, a fervor or a, a, a taste for new politics or better politics and for something better. Ross Perot tapped into a, a veins in a different but similar way uh, that Trump tapped into with, you know, being an outsider of the, of the you know, Washington, whatever, all that bullshit. Um, and so. Pro did that and it completely upset uh, the status quo. And so they changed the uh, the the ability to get into uh, on that stage. And now it's way, way, way harder and unreasonably harder. And so they make it absolutely impossible uh, for third parties to have an opportunity to upset their system. And so you're going to keep getting bad candidates and we're going to keep flip flopping in the House. There's a reason why every two to four years we keep getting makeovers and it's because neither party really represents what most of America wants. Most of America wants something much more in the middle. And however much you may love, you know, these left AOC and Bernie and these ideas of, you know, universal health care and whatever, like most of America doesn't want that. This is why the ACA failed. Isn't because uh, it wasn't lofty goals um, and maybe had really good intentions. I don't fault it for its intentions. I fault it for it. Uh, a lot of other reasons, economics and other such things, but because it's going to get picked apart. You can't pass something whenever you have all the power that most of America doesn't want. Now we've basically just spent the last you know, 10 years trying to undo that. Like Republicans swept the house because that was a very unfavorable thing to do. Um, just like whenever Bush put us into all these wars, Democrats swept the house and then, you know, the Republicans lost in the next big election. Uh, and so the same thing is about to happen again. Trump is in, in the, the white house doing a bunch of stupid shit, like pulling out of the Iran agreement. Um, and I mean, we can't really count on, fingers and toes, all the stupid things that he's done. And I could probably count on like one or two fingers on the good things that he's done uh, from my perspective. And so 
the only way you're ever going to get uh, change, actual change, uh, and something that's more palatable to uh, the the Americans at large is by changing uh, some of the the electoral process um, when it comes to getting third parties involved. Um, and so I would be a fan of something like approval voting that is a ballot change. I was for a while really in favor of uh, ranked choice voting, but after finding out about approval voting, it is just one step better. It's very similar. So right now we have what's called first past the post, uh, which is whoever wins the most on election day basically wins. Um, and then there's another version called ranked choice where uh, it's supposed to kill the spoiler effect. That's why people don't vote for third parties is because, well, if I do that, it's it's very strategic voting is what we do right now is I'm not going to vote third party because I really don't want Trump to win. So I'm going to vote for Biden. And I understand that I don't fault anybody for that. I'm not going to do what everyone seems to do over your voting voting choices and, you know, shame you for it, whether whoever you vote for. I'm sure people who are voting for Trump have good reasons, you know, that they would present on even if they hate him and say that, oh, he's a whatever terrible human being. But I would be interested in hearing that. But um, I don't know how much I would buy into it, but I would listen to it and give it its weight. Uh, but anyway, but <laughs> so, <laughs> so you approval voting is basically the idea that you can uh, select as many candidates as you want and whoever gets the most votes wins. Like it's it's pretty uh, non, uh, you know, no, no bullshit. And I'm sorry. I've said that like a thousand times. I won't say it anymore for the rest of this show, not just this episode, <laughs> but, uh, it allows you to just kind of kill the, the, the spoiler effect because you can vote for whoever you want, um, as many people as you want. And so for me, it would be very easy to, you know, whatever libertarian party, green party, and I probably stop there <laughs> and then whatever. And so I like that. Uh, the next kind of, of the, like why vote for someone who can't win is the first thing. And another one that I've been seeing a lot of is, Oh, well, it's your privilege of not being affected by the policies that are at stake. Um, and that gets thrown at me because obviously for me, like I'm a white guy, uh, American born, like I, I'm not going to be affected by immigration policy. I'm not going to be affected uh, you know, per se, like you can make a argument that says I'm affected or impacted in a very negligible way. But on the scale that people are talking about, like, I'm not black, I'm not, you know, going to suffer at the hands of the judicial system, probably, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I agree. That's all true. I am privileged. And that isn't my issue. But you know what isn't your issue? Foreign policy. You're not worried about a drone coming and striking your wedding and killing you and everyone you've ever met. You're not worried about, uh, you know, anybody grabbing you in the middle of the night and pulling you into a chamber and questioning you until, you know, you you die or whatever. Like these aren't you're privileged to not have those concerns. And those are the things that really move me at night. Whenever I'm thinking about who I want in the office, it's the low hanging fruit. Look, I know we need judicial reform. I know we need to change and protect our civil liberties. Um, and I want those things very badly. But for me, they are second tier to the foreign policy that is literally such low hanging fruit to just stop killing people. To just stop killing thousands and thousands and thousands of lives over the last 20 years clinton alone uh played a really significant part in killing half a million children in iraq that's something people don't know 500,000 and whenever 
Madeline Albright, his uh, secretary, press, not press secretary, uh, uh, state, uh, state secretary, was asked on 60 Minutes whether it was worth the price. She said, yeah. <laughs> what we did in Iraq was worth the price of half a million children. Way to go, Clinton administration. You foul pieces of shit. And so whenever I look at this, is these are the things that really drive me and get me wound up um, is because that's something that's so much easier to accomplish if we care about who we put into the Oval Office. Um, and so I don't have hopes that Biden is going to change that. Like, no, I'm sure there's other things that he can do, but he sat by and watched the Obama administration perpetuate it. Um, and in, in some ways, you know, make it worse than the Bush administration, which is pretty damn impressive in the worst way possible. And so, yeah, I, you're right. I, I do have my privileges and obviously so do you. Um, and so the last thing I guess I, I'll put on third party. Uh, no, I guess I guess I'm done. Like uh, I could probably I'm already wound up, so I need to stop. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was the point, yeah, right? It was, I guess. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah, thanks. You out waterburgered my rant. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, Glenn Greenwald. I love that quote because he's right. Like, if the the media isn't actually scrutinizing the the sources and you know what is being told by the government, it is the fourth estate. It is supposed to be the thing that helps us evaluate and understand what's going on in our government that should help protect us. Like there should be so many checks and balances. Um, but ultimately uh, it goes back to what, who was it? Franklin that after walking out of the, the, the signing of the declaration or what have you, um, you know, the woman asked like, what is it? What are we? Uh, a Republic, if you can keep it. Um, and ultimately it is on all of us each to to maintain our our civil liberties and our our constitutional republic if we want it go vote go vote go vote that was a wonderful episode two hours long might have been our longest one ever dear god if you're still listening there's something seriously wrong with you uh (laughs) you like this shit way too much um uh yeah thanks for letting us go on our little little rant very very small absolutely um but join us next week again we're gonna do primer fantastic film um make sure you stick around for that and watch it beforehand multiple times because you'll need it you're gonna need to (laughs) just trust me just set aside a few few but it's a short film it's like an hour and 15 minutes not that bad uh so yeah thank you for joining us until next week i'm todd i'm wes go watch some movies